I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson, and in this show we're talking to exceptional people who've overcome trauma or adversity in their early years to achieve great success. Our guest today is a writer whose debut novel, Shuggy Bane, won the 2020 Booker Prize. Douglas Stewart is also a successful fashion designer who worked for Calvin Klein and Ralph Lauren before becoming Senior Director of Design at Banana Republic. We're speaking to him via Zoom from New York, where he lives in the East Village with his husband Michael Carey, an art curator, but he spent his childhood in a rough area of Glasgow, surrounded by a very macho culture. Many of the struggles Shuggy Bane faces in the book, being raised by an alcoholic mother and suffering homophobic bullying, mirror his own. His biggest regret, he told Bernadine Evaristo, the previous winner of the Booker Prize recently, was that having grown up so poor, he had to distance himself from his old life to explain it. As he put it, I had to elevate myself to the middle class to turn around to tell a working class story. Thank you very much for talking to us, Douglas. It's really extraordinary that you won the Booker Prize when you grew up in a home with no books. Do you now feel completely middle class or do you still feel an attachment and drawn back to your roots? Uh, That's a great question. I think I always feel an attachment to my roots. I think our childhoods form us uh, and inform us throughout our entire life. So no matter where I am in the world, I always feel like that working class boy from Glasgow. And any problem I have in life or any opportunity, I approach it with the sort of the mindset that was drilled into me as a kid. And you said you didn't want to take readers on a poverty safari with your writing. What did you mean by that exactly? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of pressure put on people who write working class narratives or who are working class writers. We have a lot of optics and lenses put on us from the middle class that says, oh, why are you sort of telling us this or why are you showing us real life like this? And then also from within the working class, you are sort of seen as, why are you telling people that? That's that's a bit dirty and a bit shameful. Uh, you should keep that at home. And so it's just an awful lot of pressure. But what I didn't want to do is to take my own life and the people I love and to mine it for other people's sort of pleasure or voyeuristic pleasure. And that can often be known as a poverty safari where you swing people through somebody's tough times in life and then return them to worrying about their own life. And I knew that if I wanted to create this book and write this book, then I wanted the reader to be as in the room with Agnes and Shuggy and the entire Bain family as much as I could achieve as a writer. So that the experience was incredibly immersive, but also it makes the reader a little bit complicit in, in the things that are happening in the book. You achieved that incredibly well. It's a brilliant book. But did you were you surprised to win the Booker? It obviously struck a nerve with lots of other people. Well, I mean, you have to sort of go back to before that, I think. You know, as you said, I was working in fashion and I sat down to write Shuggy Bane about 12 years ago. It took me about 10 years to write, uh, 
partly because I was working full time and often quite exhausted, but also because I was just loving the writing of it. I was loving my craft. I wanted to spend time with the characters and the world I was making, and I didn't want to leave that all behind. But what that really meant is when I was writing the book, I was writing it for myself or, or at least in service to the characters and never thinking about a reader or being published. So it was stunning to win the Booker Prize. But the whole journey, I think, has, has been quite surprising for me. And you were in tears when you were reading the novel at the dress rehearsal for the Booker. Why was that? Was it because it was so much about your own childhood? Oh, it was such a an overwhelming moment of emotions, I think. You know, I think... Uh, it's such a powerful moment to be nominated for the Booker, to make the long list and then the short list. And 2020 has been happening at a distance for all of us. And so I wanted to be as present and in the moment as I could be with this, that was even just to be on the long list or the short list, was, I was sure was going to be the greatest moment of my life. And so I spent the entire three months reading every other book on the list to be as present as I could be, because we actually didn't get to meet the other finalists properly, only through Zoom or through a screen. And the moment was just really overwhelming for me. And then when they brought the incredible uh, actor out, Stuart Campbell, who actually is from Bells Hill in Glasgow, and he did the short reading from Shuggy Bane, I was blown away. I was just so overwhelmed with emotion. I was so grateful to be there. I was uh, so touched that all of this was happening. And everyone else was sort of smiling around me on the camera. And there's me, this grown man in floods of tears. And I thought, oh, you've got to get it together. Mm. But it is incredibly powerful and very beautifully written, but also desperately sad. And I found I had to pace myself when I was reading it. I could only read a couple of chapters at a time because it was so difficult and painful. Was it very painful to write? Well, I think, first of all, you know, um, the fact that it is sad, hopefully is balanced with the fact that it is hopeful and full of humour and full of love as well. Yeah. Uh, it was difficult to write, but it's it was far more difficult not to write it. You know, I think men from the West Coast of Scotland are never really expected to express themselves. And especially as a kid that maybe suffered from trauma, suffered from loss through addiction, suffered from bullying, you're not really given anywhere to express yourself or to put those feelings. And I've always been incredibly fortunate because I've been at least creative. And whether that's been through visual uh, medium or through writing, I was able to always express myself in that way, even if it was done in a very private manner. And so writing the book for me was incredibly cathartic. Um, it was incredibly healing. And actually, the book demanded to be written. It wasn't that I sat down and thought, ah, I'm going to do this. I was almost dragged to the desk and dragged to the page and and was powerless at the beginning of it to sort of hold it back. It's a deeply personal book, isn't it? And what we really want to do is take you back to your own childhood growing up in Glasgow in the 1980s. Can you set the scene, which you also set in the book? What was the city like? Well, I think, first of all, the city was like it always is, and that is absolutely packed full of humanity and compassionate people who look out for one another and care for one another very deeply. But I was born in the 80s, and my family were living in the high-rise towers. It was Sight Hill was the name of the estate. And, you know, much of Glasgow went through a huge urban renewal in the 50s and the 60s, where they, they tore down some old tenements and then built very quickly these housing estates, which at the time, I think, were actually seen as very hopeful things. You know, they had indoor toilets, they had indoor heating, all of these wonderful new technologies. But oftentimes the houses were built very cheaply. Uh, the communities were built without perhaps any kind of central 
community aspect or meeting place. And by the time I'm born in the 80s, they start to fall into this huge amount of disrepair. And we now know, or we have a different sort of expectation of what it's like to grow up in a high-rise tower or in these sort of stranded housing estates. But, you know, I'm the youngest of three children, and my mother and father are very proud, hardworking, working-class family, you know, as were my grandparents, as were my aunts and uncles. But by the 80s, jobs are starting to sort of evaporate in Glasgow, and through the Thatcher government and through the, the Conservative government, a lot of heavy industry is being closed in very quick succession. And so there's shipbuilding, there's the railway works, there is steel, there is coal, and they're all closing quite quickly one after the other. And so for a young boy who grows up in the manual trades, and that would have been something I would have done, there's just such high unemployment. You know, the figures can be a little bit vague, but it does say that it's about 26% and that it stays there uh, for a generation. And what we certainly know is that when sort of hope and employment leave a community, uh, then really sticky things rush in. And certainly drink and drugs start to come into the city. There's addiction. And we know that life expectancy in the city lowers by about 14 years in the poorest neighborhoods. And, you know, I just sort of grew up amidst all of that. It was also a really strange time for such a, a patriarchal society. I mean, this is a community, and I'm talking about working class Glasgow. Glasgow, of course, is a, a city with many stratas and many very dynamic things. There are very large middle class communities and arts and creative communities. But I grew up in a house and scheme where all the men went out to work and it was maybe the women had wee jobs, but women were mothers and they were meant to look after the house and look after the kids and manage everything to do with that. And and when men are sort of brought to their knees in a society, when men struggle, then women and children suffer first and they suffer the worst. And so it was a really weird social time as well where families start to sort of come apart. Did you find it a frightening place or a aggressive place or a violent or depressing place or did you just feel that it was home? No, and actually I found it, I think the thing I found is it was a, a place that sort of lived all the way to the edges. It was always packed with emotion. And sometimes that was like, enormous humor and love and compassion and then anybody that knows Glasgow knows it there's also violence and there's sadness and there's threat and that can be Glasgow it's these very polar opposite things that are sort of wedged together or come very close together as a kid you don't understand what you're living in you just are living in it and so you children are incredibly accepting optimistic hopeful hopeful creatures, I suppose. And I never knew it was a bad time, or I certainly knew little bits about it, but because every family was going through something similar or something like that, you kind of just get on with it. And, and that is life. And amidst that, you know, that's where I come to have such a respect for the Glaswegian spirit. There is an unsinkableness to Glaswegians that I've tried <laughs> to carry with me throughout life. There's a hope, there's a humor, there's an empathy that I think I haven't been able to find in many other places. And, and that is, you know, what it means to be Glaswegian. And Shuggy Bain is dedicated to your mother. In the book, mm. Shuggy's mother, Agnes, is beautiful and strong and always immaculately dressed, whatever else is going on. She's determined mm. to present her best face to the world. Was your mother like that too? Yeah, Agnes Bain is a fictional character. I have to say that first of all. But my mother was of a generation of women that no matter what was sort of going on at home, whether there was no food to eat or whether you were worried about catalogue bills or the gas bill or the telly bill, you never went over the front door without putting yourself together uh, in the most immaculate way. So you would put your best coat on, you would have your hair done, you would have your face uh, sort of painted with fresh makeup. And part of that was about rejecting shame. Part of that was about sort of 
having, you know, telegraphing your own self-worth because we all have self-worth no matter what sort of our financial situations are. But it was also a really powerful statement, I think. And I was always really inspired by it. And it stayed with me my entire life, even as a man and how I present myself to the world. But then certainly as I wanted to write these characters. And Agnes is also, though, an alcoholic and who loses control. And even if she presents her best side to the outside world, she sometimes her children see her worst side. When, when did you first realise your mother was an alcoholic? My own mother struggled with drink from my very earliest memories. It's a hard thing to tease apart in Britain, I think, and especially in Glasgow and communities like Glasgow that are already prone to heavy drinking cultures. And so it's hard to say where a good time ends and a bad time starts and someone sort of tips over into it. But I certainly remember from about four or five, the concern from the rest of my family about how my mother was sort of sinking into drink or how it was no longer fun and no longer a good time. And that continued throughout my childhood. It didn't mean to say there was alcohol in the house every single day, but as a child of an addict, you you start to sort of be incredibly watchful. And mm-hmm. even if you're sort of surviving or getting over a really bad period, you're always worried about the next one coming. And there's such a spontaneousness or a randomness to it that you can have the first half of the week can be great and then the second half can be absolutely terrifying. So did you always find yourself monitoring her drinking? Were you always trying to keep track of the vodka bottles or do anything to try and stop her in the end? I think children of addicts or children of alcoholics learn all kinds of coping mechanisms and strategies. It makes us incredibly watchful children with, I think, an awful lot of empathy and initiative, I hope. But you're always trying to get in front of the problem and steer the person you love the most away from it. So you hide drink, you try to cheer the person up or you try to bring them down, you try to calm them down if they're if they're getting too manic. Uh, you learn all these very small sort of micro ways to cope and try and control the situation. You know, I would do things like unplug the telephone from the wall so no one could, she couldn't call out and do any harm to herself or people couldn't call in when she was really in a in a bad place or you try to sort of induce them into sleeping or you hide the drink or you pour it down the sink the one thing i learned really quickly is you don't want to waste alcohol you don't want to throw it away because it that won't stop the person needing to drink or wanting to drink and in fact what it means is they put themselves in more harm or more danger to get more alcohol and it can often mean sort of like falling further into penury or into uh, being tight with money. So there's so many coping mechanisms you come up with. Were you often frightened as a boy? There's a there's a terrifying scene in the book where Agnes sets fire to some curtains and Shuggy's in the room. And I, I just wondered whether that had actually happened or whether there were other frightening things that happened to you. That's actually a fiction, um, that scene, but it sort of encapsulates the terrifying feeling that you feel. One of the things that's really true in the book is there's a scene where Shuggy comes home And he doesn't understand why, but every day at like three o'clock, just as school is wrapping up, he's suddenly seized by the cramps. He just has this sort of uncontrollable need to to evacuate his bowels, even though he doesn't need to. Mm. And that's really just the fear you live with uh, when you sort of live with an alcoholic parent. You know, he stands on the street and he looks at the house, which is a very plain council house, but he's looking for small signals as to what is telegraphing to him, what is happening on the inside you know is the lamp on are the curtains drawn is are the windows open a little bit and then he listens for sounds as he creeps along the hallway and I remember that being a constant state for me as a kid the thing about alcoholism is it's very changeable you can 
sort of come into the greatest party and everyone's having a huge amount of fun and everything's very garrulous and, you know, and just a, a great time. And then the next day it can be very maudlin or it can fuel anger, especially I think in women, you know, alcoholism often is used as a, as a fuel to, to be allowed to express the anger you're feeling at society and, and all the things that are going wrong or that you're not able to, to go out and, uh, and get for yourself because society holds you in its place. And so, you never knew if you were going to deal with sadness or anger or a party or self-harm. And that's the that's the exhaustive nature of loving someone with alcoholism. Mm. Were you ever embarrassed by your mother or were you always just feeling protective? I was never embarrassed directly by my mother, but I was I was made aware as a young man very quickly that the reputation of women is a very sort of sticky, dangerous thing. Uh, and I don't even just mean that about parents who are suffering from addiction. It was when you grow up, in poverty and you only know the wee few streets you're on, um, then whatever's said about you or whatever's known in the community sticks with you for life. And especially for women, I think reputations are used in a very damning way. I think we forgive men when they're fallible. And I think we forgive fathers when they run away and leave their kids or when they take a good drink or when they're violent or whatever a man can do. But as soon as a woman or a mother falls down or is hurt or does something that maybe impeaches her character. A community remembers that. And and you're then known as the boy with the, you know, the alky mother or whatever it is. And and so I was just aware, it wasn't that I was ever embarrassed by my mother, but I was always aware of how the community was watching her. Mm. And Shaggy Bain is really a love story, isn't it, between a mother and a son? We talk a lot about unconditional love of a parent for a child, but that also works the other way around. There is this unconditional love of a child for a flawed parent. Can you articulate why that can be so strong? Um, I hope so. <laughs> I'll give it a try. Mm. Uh, you know, I like to write about love, but I've always known love uh, to be most powerful when it's tested or to be um, when it's something that really is just challenged on a daily basis. Children are remarkable creatures and their capacity for love, I, I haven't ever sort of seen it anywhere else in the world, especially when they don't know anything else and their entire universe is the parent. And so I wanted to sort of show Shuggy just as being this being that loved his mother more than anyone else in the world could love his mother. And he keeps running at the situation every single day, which is another thing you do when you're a kid of an alcoholic parent. You know, you just get up and and take every day as it comes because you have no idea of the context you're living in or how to compare it to what other kids are going through. And so there is a very sort of dynamic, strong, often tested love that children of alcoholic parents have. And I think that was just what I wanted to capture and put on the page. And of course, Agnes loves too, but Agnes is also deeply hurt and and is searching for love in wrong places, I suppose you would say. Um, but also those wrong places are where society tells her to go looking for love. And by that, I mean, you know, looking to men to make her feel better about herself. But it's almost as if a child with a damaged or even damaging parent can end up being more caring than one with a happy parent. And I, do you think it's that you're trying to make up for the lack in the, in the parent, perhaps you're trying to sort of compensate? I don't know that it's necessarily about compensation. I think it's a, when you're the child of someone who's struggling with addiction, you're taught very quickly that the world is not about you as an individual. And I think oftentimes with children, we let them believe they are the center of the world or we hope that they are, you know, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. why we sometimes have kids. But when you are 
when you're the kid of an addicted parent, um, you're taught really quickly that you're not the most important person in the room. And that might be sad sometimes, but actually it's also a really valuable lesson to learn because there'll be very few rooms you go into as an adult where you're the most important person. And so I don't know that it necessarily teaches you about a capacity to love, but it it does sort of teach you about life in a way that, that can be an important lesson to learn. And Shuggy has to become the adult in the relationship, really. Did you find that the same, that you had to take responsibility for cooking and cleaning and getting the benefit money when you were little? Oh, absolutely. And But it's again, it's not like it was every day. You know, that's the unpredictability of addiction. There could be months and months where everything was fine at home and you would still live in terror um, of it sort of coming back or there being a relapse. But it wasn't that it was necessarily a daily grind. You know, life changes, could change on a on a dime, really. And you could... I could leave my mother some mornings on the way to school and everything would be fine. And it had been six weeks of everything being fine and full of love and hope. And you would come home and she'd be drunk mm-hmm. or, you know, and so that was the terror of it. Um, you just never knew what you were coming home for. And, and actually it is true that you become the adult in the relationship, but you also in a funny way become a caretaker or a guardian as well, because then you never want to leave their side because yeah. you know, sometimes when you leave their side, something bad happens. And that um, that breeds like a really strange anxiety in children. It must have been constant, that sense of anxiety. And do you have a sense of almost life spiralling out, out of control and that you've got to try and bring some kind of order to the chaos? Yeah, you are. You're trying always to make sure the person you love the most doesn't come to any harm. And harm can be very multifaceted. It can, it can include, it can be self-harm, it can be people harming them, it can be harm to reputation, it can... It can be physical harm and you're just always trying to manage that situation. And so from about seven years on, um, you're trying to do everything you can. And you learn these really sort of small strategies. I've spoken before about one of my most effective things was if ever I saw my mother sort of feeling lonely or looking to take her her troubles out to the street or go find company for it. One of the things I would do is I would say, well, why don't you tell me your story? And I would sit at her feet and just get a school book. And she would dictate what she thought was her memoirs to me. And that was a great way to make me the focus of her attention. That's amazing. And also also to help her, you know, there are very little mental health services in 1980s Glasgow. And certainly if there are, women like my mother didn't think they could access them, you know. And one of the most important things we know now is just getting someone to talk is really powerful. So me sort of sitting and being this receptacle or this vessel for whatever my mother wants to express um, was incredibly helpful for her. And also, I think, probably gave me too much inspiration (laughs) for what I write about as an adult. And why do you think she became an alcoholic? Because you talk about it as a disease, as if there's some Mm. sort of sense of inevitability about it. And are you worried that it's hereditary? Or do you think it was just the circumstances that drove her to it? Honestly, I wrestle with that question every single day, and I can never answer it. Um, I don't think anyone ever comes into the world uh, thinking that they will uh, one day have an addiction or alcoholism. None of us know what's coming towards us in our life. And even today, I don't have any problem with alcoholism or any kind of substance. But I've I've learned enough to know that I'm still in the world and I'm not out of it yet. So I just hope and pray it's never it's never something I have to face myself. But you know, my mother. Uh, was a very loved young woman. She was beautiful. She was bright. She had so much ambition. She had so much love and support in her world around her. And yet she still sort of fell into alcoholism. I think sometimes that can be a leeching away of hope or 
especially for women at the time, I think the world wouldn't rise up and allow her to realize her small dreams or her small wants. You know, she couldn't get out of poverty. She couldn't buy us clothes that she didn't have to then pay back over three, four, five years. If ever she got a small job, it kind of put her further behind in what she would make on government benefits. Uh, you know, men were bad to her. And, you know, the world didn't sort of have any place for her to put her ambition or her hopes. And she never saw it sort of getting any better. So I can't begin to untangle the psychology of that. When I first started writing Shuggy Bane, I thought of it almost as a cause and effect. Something bad would happen to the character of Agnes and then she would drink because of it. And as I became older, I started the book when I was 30. I finished in my 40s. I understood that that wasn't the way at all. Sometimes hope or your dreams, you can just see that they're not going to come true. It can be a very imperceptible thing. And that just starts to collapse on the inside of you. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the 2020 Booker Prize winner, Douglas Stewart. There'll be more from us after this. To enjoy more incredible stories from incredible people, why not get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times today with one month for free? Head online and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash past imperfect. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the fashion designer and writer, Douglas Stewart. Shuggy talks a lot about how he wants to be normal. Is that something you felt? Do you remember kind of feeling different or a bit of an outsider as a child? I do. And actually, I remember the exact moment I was told I was different. You know, it was, I mean, I say it was a Tuesday, it might have been a Wednesday, but it was, I was in primary two at school. And it was one of those wet afternoons. And we were all playing in the classroom. It was one of those old grand Victorian classrooms, big high windows. We were having a great time. I don't remember exactly what we were doing. But it's possible that I was sort of playing with the girls when the boys were playing with the boys. And I just remember about six boys turning and saying, why are you like that? You know, what is wrong with you? You're no right. And then really quickly, at such a young age, it turns into, you know, the P word or the epithet that we know that I don't love to say. But, um, you know, I was called that 
mm. on that same day. And then that just sticks. Again, in the same way of the reputation for women in a community and men too. But when you start to get labeled as that, it's very quickly something you can't ever shake. And so that was the day it started and then it never let up. When did you realize you were first gay, do you think? Well, that's a really tough question because that was the day I realized I was different or that they saw me as different. I had no concept of me feeling different before then. You're At six years old, you're just this little spirit of sort of light and fun and self-expression. And, you know, you don't really know the shame or the things you're not supposed to show interest in. And I was fascinated by elastics. I don't know if you know what I mean, but like skipping elastics. Skipping, yeah. the bridge. <laughs> and sort of like, and so that was what I wanted to play at playtime. Um, and that went down really badly with the boys, you know, because it was me and all these girls. But I just loved the sort of the rhythm and the skill that was in it. That was how I wanted to play. You're supposed to be doing football or something, Lee. Really. As a, yeah, football or chasing or whatever, or fighting or, you know, cops and robbers, whatever else the other options were. I just loved elastics. It was something that just sort of stuck with me. And so that was sort of when I was first sort of told it was different. But gay, as we know it, in terms of having feelings towards someone of the same sex, wasn't really something that happened for me until I was like 13, 14. And so the the space between six and 13 was about, oh, my God, what is broken inside me? Why do these people not like me? Why do they not think I am like them? And then trying to tamp all of that down anytime it popped up. Oh, you can't play elastics. You can't like dolls. You can't want to skip. You can't like singing along with these big ballads on television. Anytime somebody told me that my feminine behavior was wrong, I tried to correct it. And of course, that just means you're denying your true self. But, you know, the thing about the patriarchy is, is it's really narrow for men as well. We often talk about the harm that women and children receive underneath it. But actually, there's only a very narrow way you're allowed to be a man. And that's where all that stems from. And so it hurts everybody when you live in that kind of um with those kind of expectations or those narrowness, you know, all the houses are the same. Everyone's bringing in the same wage or not. And then therefore all the men act the same way and treat everyone the same sort of way. You're not allowed any self-expression or vulnerability or tenderness uh, because it's seen as some kind of weakness. And so I was forever trying to like do things that would teach me how to be that idea of an archetypical man. And some of it was like paying attention to soccer or football when I didn't have any interest in it, like zero, like less than zero interest. Or it was about how you carried yourself or the betraying yourself with, through your interests or the things you were drawn to. And so I was always trying to correct it and thinking that like everything in life, if you just do this and you work harder at it, then it will correct itself, you know, and you won't be different. And um, it was only much later that you start to forge a path to self-love and acceptance. How bad did the bullying get? Was it quite physical or was it more subtle emotional bullying? It had lots of different frequencies. Um, for the most part, it was about exclusion and it was about sort of pecking order. And I think a lot of kids, and we know kids bully because they're feeling terrible about themselves and who knows what these other kids were going through at home, but they saw me as just a vessel for all their sort of hate and all the things they felt terrible about inside themselves, I think. And so it was a lot of name calling. Some days it was physical and they would beat me up. And as I get older and as I sort of become a teenager, there was the violence escalated at times. Um, and there was a time I was set upon by about 12 boys in the street on a Saturday afternoon who'd just seen me coming down the road. And there's a sort of, we talk about it as gaydar between gay people, but there is a sort of a... a, a 
perhaps there's a signal or a way you carry yourself that people see and, and they want to sort of attack that. And so I was attacked very violently when I was, uh, I think I was 15 hmm. and set on. And um, and actually, if it had, it had been a, it was an old Glaswegian housewife who was driving by and thought the boys were um, actually hitting a dog. They thought she thought they were stamping on a dog and so stopped her car and got out and chased these oh teenage boys away. And, and at the center of it was me. And then when you were 16, your mum tragically died. What happened? Yeah, I don't talk too much about that in specifics, but my mother, um, her her drinking accelerated throughout my childhood. And I think there's a point when I'm probably about 12 or 13 where it becomes clear that all the hope where you think, oh, she's going to get sober one day, she's going to get sober. My family, in a way, sort of start to think, uh, that's that's just not going to happen. And so just one day, very quietly, she succumbed to her addiction uh, in the middle of the day in the morning. And it was a very sort of unsparky exit for someone who could really drink to and be a combustible person. It was a very quiet way. She died in an armchair. And it was about sort of the compounded effect of all these years of drinking. And, uh, you know, she was a very young woman and I was a very young boy. And, mm-hmm. and that's the tragedy of it is just a life that's lost in that way. Were you there when it happened? I was not there. I was at school. It must have been awful to come back to. Yeah, it was. I mean, I don't. I, I think the moment is awful, but I think no matter how it would have happened, it would have been awful. You know, I was on the brink of manhood myself. I was trying to, like I say, cling to education and also worrying about my mother. But, you know, I think part of writing Shuggy 30 years after my mother passed, almost 30 years is the desire to sort of explain those circumstances, but also to connect with her. And it's love. You know, nobody, I don't think anybody would sit and spend 10, 12 years writing a book if it didn't come from a place of love and missing the person. Mm-hmm. And you lived on your own in a bedsit after that, when you're working four nights a week at home base. How on earth did you get that work ethic after that? Because it is extraordinary at that age to really to have got your life together and kept going on. Yeah, I lived with my elder brother for a period between that and he he really made sure my life was put back together and that emotionally I was I was not uh, that I was okay. But you know, in working class communities it's a lot to ask people to put faith in two more years of high school education then four years of university education when there's a need for money to come into the house that Friday. You just even if it's 80 pounds, 120 pounds that's a lot of money. And I knew I had to finish my education. So I end up in a, in a bed set supporting myself at 17. And, you know, it was one of these rent per week. It's a room in a sort of shared boarding house with uh, all these older men who are actually in the end stages of their life. And I'm going to school every single day and school's already a riot. I mean, there's so many kids that aren't having their their needs met. It's such an area of deprivation. But I leave school at 3.30 and at 4 p.m. on the dot, I start a shift in, in, a, in a DIY superstore. And then I work all day Saturday, all day Sunday. My only night off is Wednesday nights. Uh, and I used to love them because I was so tired. Um, and I would catch up on schoolwork and homework. But I just had to do it. I had to cling to education. I'd seen the society around me just be denied basic human hope sometimes. And and so I didn't know what education was. None of my family could tell me where it would take me, but I thought, by God, it has to go somewhere better than this. Were you also just incredibly disciplined and desperate to be neat and tidy and orderly after all the chaos? 
You know, it's a complicated thing to explain, but when someone has been suffering with addiction your entire life, and I'm 16 at that point, then you're you're glad that they're not suffering anymore. The suffering that the addicts goes through is the most important thing. Never mind what it how it makes the rest of you feel and the chaos it brings in your life. That person at the at the heart of that is really hurting. And I'd had, you know, 10, 12 years of just worrying about that hurt. Mm. And so at 16, there is a sort of relief is the wrong word. I, I never know what the word is, but you're there's a peace for the person and you're grateful. I mean, I would do anything to have my mother back. I would have done it then and I wish she was still with me now, but but you're grateful for the peace that person finally has. And so that was, I speak a lot about the fact that I grew up in a house with no books, but it was only actually after my mother died that I could read a book from cover to cover. Because before then, I didn't have enough peace inside myself or in the environment around me. Um, you just can't concentrate. And I think, especially in literary circles, we forget to acknowledge what a luxury it is. First of all, when people have books in their life, but then also when they have environments where they're, they're allowed to read, you know, where you were just calm enough. You're not worried about food or money or violence or anything else. And, and I think a lot of people don't have that. How did you actually start to read? Was there one teacher who encouraged you? By the time, just after my mother died, school starts to winnow out. Because like I say, a lot of kids go and get jobs and have careers and, and, and move on with their lives. And, and I think from about 250 kids, only 12 kids are left for my fifth year and my sixth year at school. And so suddenly it's just quieter in my year and the teachers can suddenly breathe a little bit and sort of focus on the individuals. And it was then that I actually had four teachers come into my life in really meaningful ways, two art masters and then two English masters. Um, and uh, it was then that sort of books start to become a thing. And my life also living in the bedside, I don't think I had a television if I remember correctly. And so I would love after working at the superstore just to go home and read and have the time and the space and the mental peace to be able to do that. And, and that's when I would discover, you know, sort of uh, Hardy and Dunn and Du Maurier and Tennessee Williams even was, was one of the first things I was, was put in front of me to read. And what was it that you loved about those books? What was it that inspired you? Well, they were just a starting point, I think. And certainly as I went on and widened, you know, it took me until my adulthood to go back and discover Scottish literature or queer literature. You know, teachers can't put those things in front of you in the educational system of the early 90s. But I think it was peace. You know, when you read a book and you can really focus on it, you can be really transported away from your daily life in a way that sometimes films or television or music can't hold you. And you can travel as well. I'm a kid that you know, knew the house and scheme he grew up on and didn't see much else of Scotland. I think I'd been to Blackpool once and I'd been to Fife once and been to Largs once as well by the time I'm 16. So I hadn't really seen much of the world. And then suddenly here were these universes that uh, that just allowed you to go everywhere and also be inside of the everywhere you went. You know, you weren't just a tourist. You were really in, inhabiting these characters' lives. And when did you start writing, really? I mean, you talked about how you wrote your mother's memoirs almost as a game as a child. Did you did you then start writing more seriously for yourself when you were older? Well, I didn't start sit down and probably start writing until I was in my 30s, until I was actually at the peak of my fashion career. And by then, you know, I was I had wanted to study English at high school, or it could have been something I would have studied, but textiles was seen as a far more practical avenue for me. I was terrible academically. My education had been so disrupted between the bullying, my mother and 
and just things that the school was going through in general, that it was sort of seen as something that boys like me wouldn't do. And so I was funneled or encouraged into textiles without actually even knowing what textiles or cloth was. But that would have been a very practical, very pragmatic trade for an early 90s boy uh, that was artistic leaning, uh, because what does Scotland manufacture if not cloth and knitwear? And so that's really how my career into fashion grew, because it started with a very sensible decision to get me a trade that would keep me employed. Um, and so I start writing when I'm 30 and I'm at the height of my fashion career. I'm, I'm working for these billion dollar brands. And, um, but I was so unfulfilled and creatively unfulfilled and emotionally unfulfilled that I sit down one day and I, and I start to write what becomes Shuggy. And would your mother have been astonished or just incredibly proud, do you think, that you ended up as a fashion designer? Because she taught you to knit, didn't she? My mother did teach me to knit. And so that was <laughs> one of the ways. We, we spoke so much about how I helped her cope with her loneliness but one of the ways she helped me cope with my loneliness is she would occupy me with knitting. And so I would knit little squares that she would maybe make into a blanket. They were never very sophisticated things because I didn't have the scale. But, you know, it was a good way to just keep my mind and my hands moving as a six, seven, eight-year-old, you know. And I never realized until much later that because I'm a knitwear designer and a writer, that my mother's at the heart of both of these. It was actually a journalist that made me think, oh, gosh, I'd, I'd never put those two things together. So you did an M- MA in menswear at the Royal College of Art, and then you were spotted by a Calvin Klein talent scout and ended up in New York. What was it like when you got there? Did you find it intimidating, or did you actually immediately feel at home and sort of able to be yourself finally? Oh, I hated New York at first. Uh, you know, Calvin Klein offering me a job was such a... Uh, a huge boost to my career and such a beginning to my career. But I would have, if I had anybody offered me a job, I had no power to say no to any of it because there was no where to go back to. So I was just, it was very odd and very fortunate that it was Calvin that offered me a job. But I was so unprepared, you know. Um, I'd never been somewhere like New York and ending up uh, there on my own uh, with no sort of reverse gear in my life, no way to turn around, was incredibly lonely. And, and, We've spoken about it before, but Glasgow is a place of solidarity and of compassion. New York doesn't care about your feelings, you know, and especially when you're starting out on a career, it's all about work and it's all about achieving. And if you if you feel hurt or you feel lost or you feel alone, then there's someone else that will take that job in a minute. And so there's a relentlessness to the city that takes a while to sort of attune to and to find your tribe within the city, to make friends, to even figure out where you want to live. Um so it was about two years before I, I thought, God, I can I can actually survive here. And could you have written it, do you think, if you'd still lived in Glasgow? Or did you need that sense of perspective? I don't... The one thing that distance has given me in writing Shuggy is it gave me an, an awful lot of perspective and clarity, as you say, but it also created a sense of longing inside me. And I think that longing was the thing that kept me coming back to the page. One of the things that's uh, that's a good lesson to learn as an immigrant is communication uh you know i've i've been forever explaining myself to people in america who don't know me or don't understand where i came from and in a way shuggy is a manifesto of that you know it Mm -hmm. is 450 pages of explaining what glasgow was like what it was like for mothers for sons uh you know how to put money in a television meter even on the micro level and and part of the desire to write shuggy i think was that sort of both connecting two parts of my life that feel very different but also explaining myself to the world what do you think your mum would have thought of it? Uh, I think mothers are proud, uh, no matter what you do. I think uh, my mother would have... It wasn't that my mother was voiceless or that women that suffered like she did were voiceless because they were 
by God, they could roar. You know, they had really loud voices and they were very dynamic people. But it was that we didn't have ears. We didn't like to listen. You know, society doesn't like to look when a mother is fallible or when a mother is hurt. And so we tend to turn away and we turn away in a very micro way, meaning the family turns away and friends turn away because it's too much to deal with. But then we also turn away as a society. We don't like to see poor women struggling because it makes us feel guilty and bad about the things we have. And so I think my mother would feel um, really touched that her struggle and her suffering created a work of art. And then I think the book of recognition is the best way to sort of just recognize that. It's, the, it's, it's just the loveliest thing. And your manuscript was rejected 32 times, wasn't it? it was, did you just keep going because you knew you had to get your story out? Or was it because you loved writing it so much? Yeah, the rejection actually didn't mean that much to me, to be honest. And as a writer, you have to learn how to face rejection. You're going to be rejected every single day. And even post winning the Booker, I will tell you, I'm still being rejected. Um, so <laughs> everyone should. Un- and that, so that's a skill you have to learn. You'll be rejected by readers, by critics, by agents, by editors. Um, you're, you're just going to be rejected. And so you have to learn resilience and perseverance. But it also has to come from a belief in the thing that you've created, because Rejection is also important because you're trying to find the champion in your editor or in your publisher who loves these characters in this world just as much as as you do. Um, but again, I was writing only for myself, and that was all I had wanted to achieve was to create this book. Um, so I, I felt okay with the rejection because I'd still felt like I'd achieved what I wanted to. Do you think that resilience is greater because of the struggles you had as a boy? Do you think it changed your character in any way? I think perspective is one of the most important things that any person can learn. And I'm aware of it sometimes when I meet people and they don't perhaps have a a gratitude for the small things they have in their life or have perspective on how other people might be sort of hurt or struggling in their own way. Um, And so I think that resilience is definitely something that comes from my childhood and and also not expecting that the world is going to reward you in any way is an important thing to learn as well. The world doesn't require you, you know, it's not going to give you the things that you think you want. And so what it comes down to is you have to work for it. And I've always understood that, you know, I think sometimes people think that a kid or a story from the working class, if it arrives at somewhere as lofty as the booker, there's an enormous amount of luck. And there is luck. But you have to be prepared for that luck. It takes so much more work, I think, for someone who's starting uh, from a place of deprivation to just get to the same place that someone that maybe didn't have that comes from. And that's the lesson I would want anybody that shares a similar circumstance to me to understand is it will take work, but it is possible. And looking back now at your 16-year-old self, having spent so long caring for your mum and then losing her, what advice would you now give to yourself? Oh, I've never been asked that. I don't know if I've I've thought about that. I'm I still feel like I'm a person that is every single day trying to build himself and rebuild himself in new ways. So I never quite look back and think about what I would tell them. I think one of the hardest things is I would try and love myself sooner. It took me a long time to dismantle all the barbs of homophobia that were I didn't realize how deep the roots were inside myself. And I didn't really learn to like love and accept myself until I was in my mid-30s, I think. And so if I could sit my 16-year-old self down, I would just try and encourage him to get there a bit quicker, I think, and, and let him know he's loved. First books are often about yourself and your childhood. What are you writing about next? 
you know, I think I'm always writing about a sense of belonging or feeling on the outside, even when you're on the inside. And so I'm actually excited to announce that we'll be able to announce my second novel mm-hmm. in the coming weeks. It's actually finished. Although I've recently published, I've actually been writing for for much of my adult life. And so my next book is really looking at uh, this young man who is growing up in Glasgow in the 1990s and has fallen in love across sectarian lines. But him and the boy he's fallen in love with are being torn into the world of territorial gangs. But much of Shuggy was about um, how women suffer under the patriarchy. But I also believe that men suffer too. And we ask young working class boys to man up in a very sort of violent, sexualized way. And I wanted to really look at the damage that that can do to, to the character and also the community. What's really fascinating is, again, you're taking your life now must be so different to your life in Glasgow. And it's as if you're kind of bringing those two worlds together. I think one of the, I mean, for good or bad, my early years were packed with inspiration. And so I guess I'm processing through that. Uh, it's been a gift. It's been a curse, like however you want to look at that. Um, but as a writer, I think we're always drawing from a point of uh, personal experience. And certainly writing is often strongest when you understand what the characters might be going through. Um, and so I'm just sort of still working through a lot of things that I saw and I understood and and experienced as a kid. And there's quite a rich mind there. And you wouldn't really have been able to write such an extraordinary book as Shuggy Bane if you'd had a happy childhood. So in some ways, was it worth the pain, do you think? That's, I, I've been asked that a lot and I never know how to answer it because the truth is, is I would have my mother and that world back in a minute and not have Shuggy Bane or the work. I think... Um, I can't barter those two things off because the truth is, is when you love someone like your mother or your father, then you would just want them back and and no matter what it was. And so I think the best thing we can do, especially sometimes when you're a man and you don't always get to express yourself is to turn trauma into art. That at least is a positive thing out of a negative thing. And, and I'm really lucky that I'm able to do that. Douglas Stewart, thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. All right, look after yourself. You too. You too. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the writer Douglas Stewart. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To listen back to our previous episodes and make sure you never miss the next, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and from the Times Radio app. We'll be back with another Past Imperfect next week. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 